Welcome to Urban Forum Northwest with your host, Eddie Rye. Uh, my first guest is on the line and the air right now, and uh, that is Congressman Hank Johnson uh, from the 4th Congressional District of the great state of Georgia to kind of turn things around for the Democrats uh, uh, in the last election cycle, and maybe they can have repeat it uh, in the next election cycle. So Congressman Johnson, welcome to Urban Forum Northwest once again. Thank you for having me, sir. And uh, I'm glad to see that you're doing well. And before we went on the air, uh, I want to let people know that Congressman Johnson is on the House Judiciary Committee. He's also on the House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee, the committee that a lot of uh, Republicans like, even though they didn't vote for it, because they're doing wonderful things in communities, repairing infrastructure and bridges and creating uh, good paying jobs. But uh, one of the priorities that we have right now is still fighting this uh, this uh, uh, COVID uh, variant, Omicron. And uh, just talking with Congressman Hank Johnson before we came on the air, the significant number of uh, young Black folks who are not vaccinated. And Congressman Johnson, I'd like to have you uh, give that uh, little dialogue uh, uh, once again on what, what's going on and you see in the studies and we're not doing as well as we should be doing. Yeah, there are, there are uh, many young people, 18 to 39, who have decided that they are not going to get vaccinated. They are, um, they've been filled with misinformation that they get from social media because, you know, that's pretty much the way people receive their so-called news these days is through social media as opposed to listening to uh, a uh, legitimate, uh, credible news report on uh, TV or uh, listening at a radio program on NPR, some uh, a source that is reliable and trusted. Uh, they get their news from from uh, unreliable sources. And so you get a lot of misinformation out there that is being planted. I mean, the Russians have been playing a misinformation game in America. Uh, they used to call it propaganda uh, before you had, um, you know, social media. But now propaganda is being spread on social media. It's designed to destabilize uh, things in this country. And so healthcare, racial relations, immigration, all of these things are, are subject to um, the misinformation that the Russians and others are putting out there, including Republicans. I mean, the, the biggest purveyors of uh, misinformation out there are, uh, are Republicans, uh, in addition to the Russians. And they put out information after they themselves get vaccinated, they put out information telling you that vaccinations are wrong. And so a lot of our people are falling for the misinformation. We may not watch Fox News, but we we get it on the social media. And then their people, the older people, uh, older white people um, listening to Fox News, uh, they don't get vaccinated. And so when you have a bunch of unvaccinated people amidst those who are vaccinated, you still get the um, uh, evolution of variants and uh, these variants uh, start impacting everybody and, and you never do close out the, the virus. Uh, so what we really need is for everybody to get vaccinated, but I'm afraid, Mr. Rye, that is too 
almost, I won't say too late, but I mean, I have been vaccinated and boosted and still caught the Omicron variant, which seems to be uh, overpowering of the, uh, of the uh, vaccines and the booster shots. But yet those shots are still valuable in reducing the, um, the seriousness of the uh, illness, if you catch it, of the virus. You don't get hospitalized, hospitalized and, and, and die. Uh, to the same degree as those who catch Omicron and have not been vaccinated and boosted. But in terms of terminating the spread of the, the virus itself, it's just, it's, it's, it's so many variants that are being produced now. It looks like this is something we're going to have to be dealing with for the next several years. But, you know, the other thing that's really kind of interesting is that why do you think so many members of Congress are coming down with uh, with this, uh, this this virus. Well, you know, I was over at the Senate the other night as they were passing, or as yeah, as they were uh, considering passage of the uh, Freedom to Vote John Lewis Act, and you looked over on the Republican side, they don't have a rule, a mask rule in the Senate like we do in the House, but. Just about every single one of the 50 Republicans who were on the on the floor over there on their side were unmasked. And then you got the Democrats sitting on their side. Everybody's masked up. And so, you know, you have the virus spreading like wildfire, wildfire uh, throughout Congress. So those who try to take precautions are, uh, you know, with this. Omicron variant, which is less, uh, which is still infectious, which is, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, people are not catching that, uh, the, the, the Delta variant, they're catching the Omicron variant because it has uh, evolved, that variant has evolved so that the vaccine and the boosters are not as effective when it comes to warding off the infection. And so that's, so we got people in Congress who are refusing to follow good rules, social distancing, put your mask on, you'd be able to stop the spread of it, but uh, they won't do it. And uh, half the, the Republican um, staffers walking around in the House office buildings, they don't care about vaccine, about mask mandates and uh you know so we that's what we have in in congress and that's what we have in america the yeah. virus still circulating congressman i want to uh, spend some time talking about you on the house judiciary committee and we know that our first member of the cbc from uh the the, uh, the ninth congressional uh, the 10th congressional district Marilyn strickland is also on the house infrastructure and uh transportation infrastructure committee and as a matter of fact, I uh, talked earlier today to the chair of uh, the Sound Transit Board, the Regional Transportation Board, is African-American uh, councilman from the University Place, Washington, on the city council. And he's also chair of the Sound Transit Board. So if you could just talk a little bit about how that committee operates and uh, the money goes and if there are any requirements to make sure that black folks and others get a chance to participate. Well, no, there, there are no... Uh affirmative action programs for for specifically for black people in the uh, 
Department of Transportation uh, funding bills. Uh, it, they are set up so that uh, preferences can be given to uh, disadvantaged businesses. And those disadvantaged businesses, that category includes uh, women who've been disadvantaged, including white women, uh, historically. Uh, it includes veterans, it includes uh, disabled, it includes uh, uh, Native Americans, it includes, uh, uh, you know, any, any uh, group that uh, has been shut out uh, traditionally. And uh, what has happened is the U.S. Supreme Court over the years has severely restricted the ability of, of uh, government and uh, industry to make decisions, make race-based decisions. And so, um, you know, the Supreme Court has, has steadily chipped away at uh, what was, what used to be called affirmative action for black people to the point now where, you know, it's not a, a viable concept at all. And that's why, everything has gone to the disadvantaged business format. And, and that forces your, 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 your black businesses to have to uh, compete with other uh, disadvantaged businesses for a limited piece of the pie. And, and here's, what happened, here's what happened in, in Seattle and Washington State is that the white women have been waived out of the program because most of the prime contractors are white men. And uh, so they could choose anybody but a black, even though we know who fought like mad to get the program started. But that kind of discrimination is here. An anti-black sentiment is, is very pre present here. And if you use anybody and no use of black, uh, like we just had filed a complaint with the United States Department of Justice, the Civil Rights Division, about discrimination is still illegal, correct? That is true. So we've had nine disparity studies We've had a, a, a private audit of, of the county. We've had another private study all say the same thing. Blacks are being discriminated against. And as long as uh, we don't have direct access to the contracts of money, we have to go to another entity, uh, we will not get selected. So that's why in 23 years in Washington State, we've not had affirmative action. Discrimination has been proven over and over again. And no, no action was taken to remedy that discrimination. So which led us into filing a, a formal complaint with the Department of Justice. And as a matter of fact, that's supported by uh, Congressman Adam Smith, uh, who sent a letter in support of. I might have shared that letter with you. But anyway, I just wanted to know how do we stand on that? Is discrimination, when you can prove discrimination against a group, is there any recourse whatsoever for that group? Yeah, it's, it's not so much the effect of, uh, of a policy, uh, but it's the intent that you have to prove at this point. And so intentional race-based decision-making is, is a very difficult thing to prove once you get to court, unless you got a smoking gun like an email or somebody on tape saying that, uh, you know, we're going to cut all of the Negroes out of this and, uh, you know, those kinds of things. You got something on paper a smoking gun. And so, you know, we have these laws on the books. We have uh, a way of settling disputes, and that is to uh, take it to court, 
take it to the courthouse. And once you get to the courthouse, you know, you look up at the judge and, uh, you know, what, what kind of relief can you expect in that kind of a situation? Uh, you look at the jury that is being selected and all of the, the, the matter of proof, if you can get to a jury, if you can get past the judge to get to a jury on, on summary judgment on, on uh, claims of racial discrimination, most of them end up getting thrown out of the door in a pretrial uh, manner with just a, a judge ruling. <clears throat> and so we have, uh, the minefield is laid for black people in this country trying to get ahead. Our businesses, our voters, our employees, on every single level, uh, you know, we have to walk the minefield that's littered with uh, obstacles designed to keep us from getting to the finish line that we want to get to. And so it's an uphill battle in this country. Uh, it, it still is. Uh, we've made a lot of progress, but we got a long way to go. So what would uh, the, with the Justice Department, the Civil Rights Division, with what what they consider to be, and you an attorney, what would it, when you have the disparity studies and all these, I mean, not our numbers, but the agency's numbers, proving the point that blacks have been left out, there'd be no recourse through DOJ? Well, I mean, DOJ can file a lawsuit as well as individuals can file lawsuits against private industry um, to try to get relief or try to force compliance. And so you have to overcome the evidentiary burdens that are, are put in your way in the law. And uh, who says But this is law? governmental entities, not, not private entities. These are governmental entities. Well, you know, who, whoever is in government can be taken to, to court also. You, you just saw that with the mask mandate that OSHA, the Occupation Health and Safety Administration, which is given the authority under federal law to regulate workplaces of entities receiving federal money. And uh, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled last week pursuant to a lawsuit filed by the private industry against OSHA, uh, saying that uh, you cannot force a vaccine mandate on uh, these businesses that receive federal dollars, you cannot require them to force their employees to get the vaccine. And the U.S. Supreme Court ruled just last week in favor of the private sector. I believe it was the National Association of Manufacturers, uh, some large uh, trade group representing uh, the private sector, sued the, the the federal government in court and won the case. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's, so everything goes back to, uh, to the courthouse uh, as the ultimate arbiter. And the, the ultimate court in the United States is the United States Supreme Court. And we know that the court has been packed with uh, its nine justices total. Six of them are arch conservatives, uh, uh, rabid, uh, anti-affirmative uh, action, anti-abortion, anti-immigration, anti-consumer, uh, you name it. 
they are anti. That's why they have been packed by Republicans who support big businesses and the wealthy. They've been, the court has been packed with a group of um, justices who uh, rule in, in the interest of those uh, interest groups, those stakeholders. And so we're at a real disadvantage. That's why I have filed legislation that would expand the size of the court from nine to 13, give us some opportunity to, um, to bring back some balance to the court. Because when you look at the court, you look at, uh, at those six justices uh, and the only one who's elderly is uh, Clarence Thomas. And he's probably about 74, 75 years old. <laughs> he, got, he got about 10 more good years in him. He's already been there for, for 30. And yeah. uh, the rest of those uh, folks that they have are poised to have a 30 or 40 year run also. Okay, so, uh, Congressman, uh, Congressman Johnson, we've been joined. Uh, I want to thank you for your time today, your insight and your wisdom as always. But this gentleman that's on the line with us right now, Gerald Bradford, is uh, uh, vice chair of the board of the Central District Community Preservation Development Authority. The building initially was the SOIC until Ronald Reagan got in office and defunded all the manpower programs. So Gerald Bradford, Congressman Hank Johnson might be able to help us, us somewhere down the line. So Congressman Hank, thank you very much. Okay, thank you, Mr. Eddie, and we'll talk to you soon. Okay, thank you, sir. Good well now. All right. Okay, Gerald Bradford. Good good afternoon, Mr. Rye. Okay, yeah, I wanted you to go face to face with Congressman Hank, let him know what you're doing. So anyway, uh, Gerald is Vice President of the Central District Community Preservation Development Authority, also known as the McKinney Center for Community and Economic Development, which came about because of Reverend Samuel McKinney and the Seattle Opportunities Industrialization Center. Then it went to SVI, another organization, but now uh, Gerald and the group uh, has it. Uh, Dr. Rayburn Lewis, uh, Gerald, Shade Moore, and John Yasutaki are the, are the officers of the board. I know that Pat Hayden and Lewis Rudd and others are doing work as well, Kelly Jefferson. But I want to say, uh, Gerald, that uh, you guys are coming along uh, right now, and uh, you guys have an event you want to share with the community on uh, Saturday at 10 o'clock. Can you talk about that? Yes, uh, thank you, um, Mr. Riot. First, I just wanted to quickly go over our vision, our mission, and some of our goals, if that's okay with you. Um, the CDCPDA, um, African Americans and other minorities and other underserved um, businesses will continue to live and grow with dignity in the Central District through receiving quality education, career opportunity, livable wages, jobs, and affordable housing by while being recognized for their contributions to Seattle and society um, on an international level. That is our vision. Our mission, um, the Central District um, Community Preservation and Development Authority was created in 2019 by the Washington State Legislator um, to mitigate the adverse effects of major public works and capital projects in the Central District. The CDCPDA's mission is to drive economic empowerment for African-American and other minority and other underserved communities through employment, career advancement, education, training, and business development. And so um, that is our vision and our mission. 
And yes, Mr. Rye, we are having a event this weekend. And I don't know if, uh, do I have the ability to share my screen? Well, I go right ahead. I wanted to see if I can do that. And I can go ahead and um, show the flyer that uh, we have for the event. I see an ad in uh, in the facts newspaper. We sh we have um and we're the, and I'm looking at our website the McKinneyCenter.com share screen. Uh, here we are right here. Can you see that? Ah uh, yes yes indeed yes. So yes um the event's going to be it's going to be a virtual event Mr. Rye. Um, we are very well aware of the Omicron variant that is in our community. We wanted to meet in person. It's been a long time since we've been able to, to be in person, fellowship with one another. However, we need to look out for our health, particularly some of the elders that are on our, on our board and in community. So we're going to have this virtually. Um, and this will be happening this Saturday at 10 a.m. And if you want to find out more information, um, I would like to reference you to the McKinneyCenter.com and, and which is our website. But as you can see, here's the information for the um, the streaming. Um, would would it be possible for me to go ahead and send this to you um, so that you can put this on the website? For, Absolutely, um, sir. Yeah, please do. Yeah, I'd like to send this to you as well. And so um, we have um, bi-monthly bi-monthly meetings which are open to the public and uh, for those that want to get involved in the project i would welcome you just to come and be in space with the board listen to um some of the challenges that we're having with um securing funding and working in community but be coming and be part of the solution we need at this point we need all hands on deck in order for us to be able to um, restore the building so that we're able to utilize the building for community. Yes, I would say I'd like to encourage all of the folks who worked at or got trained by SOIC or SVI to show up and give back to uh, the place that gave you your start. Now, I know a lot of you uh, OICers are up with me and a little up there in age, but you can still, your voice and your emails mean a lot. And uh, they do have a website up. You can keep posted there. If there's a need to call county council, city council, or the state uh, uh, legislators to support the funding requests for uh, the Central District Community Preservation Development Authority McKinney Center, you know, uh, anytime that uh, the legislators hear uh, that you are supporting a bill or legislation, the more calls they get, uh, they count those as votes. The most, the more calls they get, the more likely they are to do the right thing by our community. So. Uh, uh, Brother uh, Gerald Bradford, VP of the board. Um, and I we just want to say, go right ahead. I want to say one thing before I get off. Um, us as board members, we serve on the board. We're, we're not compensated for our time. And we're there truly in order to be able to make sure that our Seattle community actually has a physical space for black, black folks. And so I'm encouraging community if you feel the same way that I feel, which is to make sure that we actually have a physical place that's actually being able to develop economic um, benefit for our community, please get off the sidelines and get in the game. We need your participation. We need your voice. Thank you, Mr. Rye, for being able to let me share that. 
Okay, then, Vice President Joe Bradford, keep up the good work. And like I told the folks before, uh, this radio program is a platform for the McKinney Center for Community and Economic Development. So have a good one, and thank you very much for your time today. Thank you, sir. Okay, Eric, we'll take a break and come back with our next guest after this. Hi, my name is Mian Rice, the Diversity of Contracting Director for the Port of Seattle. As a public agency, the Port of Seattle serves the community, and our investments should benefit everyone who lives and works here. The Port is committed to equity, diversity, and inclusion, and to leveling the playing field. That means continuing to open doors to contracting opportunities to all, especially women and minority-owned and disadvantaged businesses. How can you participate? List your business in Vendor Connect, a database of contractors. Attend PortGen workshops to learn how to do business with the Port. Learn more about contracting opportunities at portseattle.org. For more information on operating a concessions at Seattle Tacoma International Airport, visit lease.seataxhops.com. Why sit in bumper-to-bumper traffic when you can hop on Link Light Rail and fly by the gridlock? It's a smoother, easier, stress-free way to get where you want to go. Whether you're heading north to Capitol Hill in the University of Washington or south to Columbia City, Tukwila, and the airport, Link Light Rail will get you there quickly and safely. And if you have an ORCA card, even better. Just tap on the yellow card reader when you get on and listen for the beep to let you know your card has been accepted. Then tap your card reader again once you've reached your destination and listen for the double beep to let you know you've tapped off correctly. To find the closest Linklight Rail station or to learn how to get an ORCA card, just go to soundtransit.org and type Linklight Rail into the search bar. Sound Transit's Linklight Rail. Just another way that Sound Transit is powering progress. Alternative Talk, 1150 on AM, 98.9 HD3 on HD, 1150kknw.com on the web. Our next guest is uh, Sarah Sims Wilson, who is the chair of the Urban Native Education Alliance and uh, UNEA. And she's been a stalwart in terms of bringing about opportunities for the indigenous students in the greater Seattle area. So, uh, Sarah, you're on the line. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. Thank you okay. so much for having us on or having me on, Eddie. I really appreciate it. So, okay, why don't you uh, let our folks, first of all, know about UNAH. I mean, we've, you've been on before. Some people know, others don't, but I think you need to enlighten them, let them know exactly what UNA stands for, what your mission is, and what you guys have been able to accomplish. Yeah, absolutely. So just um, in keeping with our cultural traditions, I'm gonna go ahead and do our, in, in our language, my Lakota language, uh, introduction. Han, Ampetu Ashte, Sarah Sense Wilson, Imachi Apie, Ma Ogalala Lakota. Um, thank you so kindly for having having me on to share about the Urban Native Education Alliance. UNEA is um, offers culturally responsive and relevant support to Native youth and family through social, cultural, and educational support services. UNEA, we provide cons- consultation, advocacy, support, and resources for Native families and students. And we continue to be inspired by our 100% graduation rate and advancement 
for native learners that participate in our program. Uh, our organization is driven by our grassroots community and our community volunteers. Uh, we're, we continue to be committed to our core values, which are integrity, interconnectedness, inclusion, and service. And our programs are all youth-centered, youth-driven, and designed for promoting health, wellness, and academic, sociocultural success for youth, families, and community. And our motto is thriving through education, culture, and tradition. And uh, tell us a little bit about, about the history of, uh, you said you have 100% success rate on graduation. Just share a little history about when you got started and where you're located and where yep. you desire to go. Yeah, so, um, well, we have had a, a whole lot of different homes um, for our organization. Um, we, right now, we are in partnership with um, North Seattle College, and that's where we've been for the last uh, two and a half years, going on three years. And we found a fantastic partnership um, that is really respectful and honoring um, and promoting higher education. And it's, it's, it's been a really wonderful experience to be valued, you know, by an institution where historically UNEA has experienced uh, a lot of uh, strife and challenges in, um, and, uh, in our work and our advocacy with Seattle Public Schools. But we're coming up on 14 years of our existence as a uh, organization. And um, so we, um, through the 14 years, we've evolved a lot, you know, starting from a group of um, educators, but also a group of students that really had very little to no prior nonprofit experience. And, um, and we have just, every year we've expanded and, and grown and learned from mistakes and um but always centering our students always with the idea that our purpose is to uplift and to provide as many as many opportunities for our children to be successful in knowing themselves and knowing their identity and their culture and their traditions and values but also um, in navigating these racist institutions that they've been, you know, forced to, to be involved with. And um, so I wanted to share uh, about our Clear Sky Academy, if that's okay. Go right ahead. Go right ahead. Yeah. So our Clear Sky Academy launched um, uh, a year and a half ago. And Clear Sky Academy is um, a pilot academic focused um, uh, OSPI credited uh, effort to provide an alternative education experience for our indigenous students here in Seattle area. And it's in partnership with Yellowwood Academy, which is a private school. Um, so they, um, so it's technically the students that enroll in Clear Sky Academy are receiving their transcripts from Yellowwood Academy. And um, so they, it is an official, they are official classes. And the, um, the first year we offered American Indian historical and contemporary experience 
um, class, which counted towards a social studies credit. And all, um, all students that enrolled and participated all earned full credit. They all did marvelous. And that was through pandemic. That was this, that was in the kind of the heat of pandemic. Um, so it's really exciting just to see that, you know, the methodologies that we applied are really um, truly community-based education. Um, we had just a, a variety of speakers come in and, and community experts and provide education and presentations that were relevant and that were um, relatable for our students. And so that was last year. And then this year we offered um, two classes. And uh, so they were also hybrid model. Um, another series of American Indian historical and contemporary experience and art and culture class, which counted towards a fine arts credit. And um, is there an event you have coming up on on Thursday, uh, uh, Thursday today? At yeah, absolutely. So today um, is we're we're working with the Washington State Charter Association, and um, they we're working with their communications department to videotape and record. Um, parent and student community and elder voices that will be speaking to the importance of having a native focus school. And um, so a native focus school through the Seattle public schools um, it has not been realized in the 14 years we've advocated for, for that. And so UNEA is, is pursuing um, charter school at this point. And um, unfortunately, at this time, the state legislators will be um, convening to um, either approve or not approve of a bill that would reopen application process for new um, charter schools. You've been doing quite a bit there. And uh, Sarah Sutz Wilson, I want to thank you very much for your time and your efforts. And uh, I guess I have to give Superintendent Brent Jones a call to see what we can work out. Okay. Sounds great. Thank you so much, Eddie. Okay. Thank you, Sarah Sons Wilson. Okay, right. Eric, uh, we'll take a break and come back after this. Hi, my name is Mian Rice, the Diversity of Contracting Director for the Port of Seattle. As a public agency, the Port of Seattle serves the community and our investments should benefit everyone who lives and works here. The Port is committed to equity, diversity, and inclusion, and to leveling the playing field. That means continuing to open doors to contracting opportunities to all, especially women and minority-owned and disadvantaged businesses. How can you participate? List your business in Vendor Connect, a database of contractors. Attend PortGen workshops to learn how to do business with the Port. Learn more about contracting opportunities at Port Seattle. Org. For more information on operating a concessions at Seattle Tacoma International Airport, visit lease.seataxhops.com. Why sit in bumper-to-bumper -bumper traffic when you can hop on Link Light Rail and fly by the gridlock? It's a smoother, easier, stress-free way to get where you want to go. 
Whether you're heading north to Capitol Hill and the University of Washington or south to Columbia City, Tukwila and the airport, Link Live Rail will get you there quickly and safely. And if you have an ORCA card, even better. Just tap on the yellow card reader when you get on and listen for the beep to let you know your card has been accepted. Then tap your card reader again once you've reached your destination and listen for the double beep to let you know you've tapped off correctly. To find the closest Link Live Rail station or to learn how to get an ORCA card, just go to soundtransit.org and type Link Light Rail into the search bar. Sound Transit's Link Light Rail. Just another way that Sound Transit is powering progress. Eddie Ryan back at Urban Forum Northwest with my next guest. Uh, I was uh, contacted by Miss Asha Dean, who is uh, the Director of Enrollment Management at the Seattle Girls School, who is also the secret Board Secretary for the Hatch School uh, for girls, and she uh, uh, wanted me to make sure the community knew about the school. And uh, to that end, I want to introduce uh, Jessica Hansen, uh, who is a co-head of the school, and uh, Sarah Pitt Peterson, who is co-head of the school. And uh, uh, since uh, I would like to have Asha uh, actually uh, moderate this part of the conversation, since she knows more about this than me, and the purpose of this whole program is to make sure that people get something, uh, information they can use out of this. So, Asha, you want to talk about how you guys all came together at University Prep and was really leading the school and all those kind of things. I don't want to get in trouble. But go right ahead, Asha. <laughs> Yeah, thank you for this opportunity. I really appreciate it. So, um, yeah, Jessica and Sarah are two of my former colleagues and some of the smartest women I know. And we met at University Prep and have gone off in our different spaces, me now at Seattle Girls School and really coming to understand the importance of that kind of learning space. And then I saw last year they were thinking about starting this school. And I immediately replied and said, whatever you need, like I support you. Um, and so we got into some conversations about me joining the board and seeing in what capacity I could support this kind of opportunity. Um, and so I'd love for them, cause I feel like they're really the experts as co-founders of like, what is a girl kind of centered and focused education? Yeah, I, I think that uh, there's a lot of, need for girl-centered education because in co-ed educational spaces, there's a lot of data that suggests that boys dominate conversation and that teachers have a hard time disrupting that dynamic. And in girl-centered spaces where girls are taking up all of the seats in the room, then that really allows girls to step up in a different way. Um, they are able to participate in every conversation. There's some data from the National Coalition of Girl Schools um, that says that girls who are in uh, all girls schools are three times more likely to consider engineering as a career path than girls who are in co-ed schools. Um, there's, there's just a lot of data that supports girls trying um, things that are perhaps not what society is messages are telling them to do when they have an all girls education. Um, I think also um, a girl centered education is really an opportunity for us to recenter whose voices and whose stories are told in our curriculum and in our classrooms uh, so that 
girls can see themselves represented much more equally. Um, there was a study uh, out recently looking at AP his US history, and there were almost no women in this um, AP US history curriculum and in one of the main textbooks that's used in the US. So how do we disrupt that so that girls can see themselves represented and also so that we can have really candid conversations about what we need to do to disrupt what happens when they leave school so that they can be represented in places where women are currently not represented out in the workplace and in the world. Thank you. Um, and I'm curious, like, because I wasn't there last year to find out, like, how did this idea of Hatch kind of emerge between the two of you and what is going to be unique about the Hatch School? So well, part of, oh, no, oh, you go ahead, Jessica. Okay. Part of our origin story is that um, I once upon a time was lucky enough to start another school down in California. And um, even knowing how much work that is, I always said I have one more school in me to try to begin. And so Sarah and I have been talking about starting a school here in Seattle for a really long time. And given the um, disruption that's happened in education as a result of the pandemic, given the experiences we see of adolescent girls in classrooms, and given the needs we see uh, in terms of equity and access to educational programs, um, we decided this was the time and this was the school. Yeah, I think that in addition to um, kind of the girl-centered aspect of, of the Hatch School, um, there are a couple other characteristics of what we're trying to do that are really about this moment in education and what Jessica and I have seen as um, needs that need to be filled at this time. So one of them is about, you know, Jessica mentioned the pandemic and part of that is that it really laid bare that schools have amazing intentions towards their students and are filled with amazing people who are trying to do right by the students. And sometimes systems and systems are really necessary to run schools effectively, but they get schools in a place where they are so entrenched by the system that they aren't able to pivot to meet the needs of the students in real time. And that we saw that all over the place with the pandemic. If you're a parent or a student, or you've even like been near one, you know that schools had a really hard time um, adapting to the change in circumstance. And that's not just about the pandemic, right? There's other changes of circumstances that have been happening over the last decades that schools haven't been able to be as responsive to as they wanted to because of the systems that are in place. Um, some of those, those needs and those changes are about equity and um, how schools can make sure that they are doing right by the students who are furthest from educational justice when they walk in the door. Um, some of those, the, some of that is about mental wellness and mental health and how schools create environments that are, can be actively harmful to, to students and particularly the young women, um, particularly at the high school level, right? So what can we do to create a school that really centers the student experience and create systems that focus on equity, that focus on wellness, and that focus on teaching girls the skills so that when they leave school, they have the tools to change unjust systems where they go after they graduate. That's awesome. And I realize um, we haven't leaned into like what your areas of expertise are. So I'd love 
you guys to share a little bit about like your educational background and like what discipline um, is kind of your home base. So um, my background is in science and science education primarily. Um, I was a research scientist for a while, um, but before that I was a high school teacher. And even when I was in the research lab, I really missed my interactions and the conversations I had with adolescents, right? I'm one of those people. I like teenagers, what can I say? Um, so when I left my PhD, when I finished it, um, and I had to decide what to do, I went back to the classroom and I've been there ever since. Uh, and I've worked at all kinds of schools all over the country, including girls schools and boarding schools and comprehensive high schools. And I'm always drawn back, um, even when I move into, have moved into admin positions to being in classrooms with kids. It's the best place. Yeah, my story is not uh, that much different, honestly. So I uh, also have a background in in STEM. I uh, have a my undergraduate major is physics, and then I went to graduate school for applied math. And when I finished my master's degree, I ended up going into teaching, and um, wasn't what I intended to do when I started graduate school. But you know, it I've always been. Uh, throughout my adult life have done a lot of volunteering with uh, youth communities and realized that teaching was an opportunity that I should have considered more uh, earlier in the program. And then once once I became a teacher, I'm I'm in it. This is this is my identity. I love teaching math. I love um, I love science. I love helping students figure out who they want to be and how they can live a life that is in support of the person that they want to become. And that's just the best work about working with teenagers. Yeah, I love working in the schools. <laughs> um, I'm curious, like, does Seattle need this? Like, there, there is, there are two all girls high schools. Like, what is the need of Seattle you see um, with Hatch? Well, we sure think they need it. Um, you, you know, there, there is Holy Names and there's uh, Forest Ridge and. Part of what we're doing that they're not is one where we're not a Catholic affiliated program and not everybody who is interested in a girl centered education is also interested in religious education. So that's one distinct difference. And then there's also some philosophical differences as well. Um, you know, we are really in in reevaluating these systems of education so that we can have a radically student centered experience. We're changing some things that are pretty significant. Um, we're getting rid of traditional letter grading and focusing more on um, narrative assessment and self-assessment. And that's not um, at the expense of the challenge and rigor of our program. Like we expect to be a really challenging program. And we don't think that letter grades are actually serving students well. Um, and there's a lot of students that we think will be well served by the education that we are going to provide at the Hatch School. I think also, you know, as we build the structures of our school, we really are creating systems where we have student voice represented from the very beginning. So Sarah often says, if our students aren't telling us what we're doing wrong, then we're doing something wrong. And I think that is, you know, fundamental to our belief that school is something that should work for students. And 
school should not be something that is done to students. So we want them to be integrally involved. And part of that also is a way for, for hatchlings, as we call them, to get to practice the skills they will need, how to ask for what they need, how to negotiate when things um, don't quite go the way they anticipate, how to really use their voices to make change, both for themselves, but also for their communities. And our school is very much a community of learners. Um, and that includes adults and students and board members and everybody else. Great. Um, how big is this kind of first cohort that you're going to welcome to Hatch going to be this coming year? And how do folks find you um, if they're interested in this might be a school for someone they know in their life, or if they want to support um, this kind of educational model and um, new beginning of a school? Those are great questions. So we are hoping um, in the fall of 2022, we're going to be opening with just ninth graders, and we're hoping to get around 30 ninth grade students for next fall. Um, we then hope that every year after that, we will continue to take more ninth graders so that um, in four years, we'll have a school of 120 students um, with 30-ish kids in each grade. And we do have a plans to grow to slightly larger than that in the long term. How long it takes us to get there, we'll have to see. But um, if you want to learn more about the Hatch School, the best place to start is our website, www.thehatchschool.org. And then Asha, I know you have an opportunity to share. Yeah, so um, I'm going to be meeting with folks and Jessica and Sarah and a couple other board members this coming Saturday. We're going to be right down um, near the Lesha Starbucks to chat with folks, meet us in person, um, and be able to learn more. Um, we feel like we're engaging personalities and being able to answer specific questions because um, this is a unique educational opportunity, um, kind of falls in line with the mission of the school and um, just doing things differently and meeting people where they're at. So would love for folks to connect. You can find Jessica and Sarah's information on the website um, and they can also get you in contact with me if that's something that's needed. Um, I think that's our time, um, Eddie, and I really appreciate being able to well, come and share well, these before ladies. we go, we, uh, first, first of all, I want to say you're a candidate for a on-air uh, <laughs> program hosting because you're excellent uh, at just being an impromptu host. That was great. But uh, I want to let people know about Asha Dean. Uh, why don't you give us a little bit about your background? Because you have a, uh, a glorified history of being a track star and doing all of it. So why don't you take a couple of minutes and share with the folks about your background? Uh, yeah, so I was born and raised here. I'm a product of independent schools. So I believe um, wholeheartedly in them. And that's why I've worked at them. That's why I support them through board engagement. Um, and just, I believe where you're going to get in life. Um, education is a key component of that and being able to connect with who is in the classroom with you and seeing representation in the adults, um, as well as having diverse and unique opportunities that you might not otherwise have um, is important in terms of like the trajectory of where kids are going to end up. Um, and then them being able to recycle those resources that they gain along the way back to their communities. And so that's why I live and work in Seattle. Um, and I work in admissions because I want to help provide that access point. And sometimes 
families aren't applying um, to independent schools because they don't know about them. And so it's making sure just the same as Sarah and Jessica are looking at different models for education. We need to look at different ways that we're getting out and engaging and connecting with the community um, and who the audience is that we're trying to reach and make sure that we're, we're sending the right messages out there. Um, and so that's why I am where I am. <laughs> well, not only that, Asha, let's say now you, be, you were famous before you were an educator because you were a track star. <laughs> So I'd like to have you share a little information with our audience about your track history and if you got a scholarship to Arizona and you won a gold medal. So share a little bit about that with our listening audience. Yeah, so I actually grew up running club track in the Central District at Garfield High School when it was a dirt track um, with a lot of my friends that have gone on to do great things of their own. And um, yeah, went to the Junior Olympics several years and was a middle distance runner. So kind of breaking the mold in terms of being a BIPOC runner from the CD um, that was running cross country and the 800 and um, won a couple state championships in, in high school too. So uh, a lot of life lessons learned through sport that I definitely still apply through um, daily life in terms of like resiliency. <laughs> And that's relevant to the head school too, because Jessica and I have a lot of skills and athletics is not are not on the list of either of our, our skills. So Asha is somebody that we've um, for sure uh, brought on to help us guide, guide our direction in that way. Okay, I really do thank you Asha for emceeing part of the program and producing it. And I wanna thank uh, Jessica Hansen and uh, Sarah Peterson and for your time today and your mission that you're on. And Asha, you know, this program would be a platform for you. So you want to keep us posted on the Seattle Girls Schools or the Hatch School. You're more than welcome to come back. So thank you very much. You guys have a blessed day. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. All righty. We want to uh, go ahead and thank a couple of folks. Uh, the Port of Seattle's Diversity Pro uh, Contracting Office, me and Rice, Lawrence Coleman, and Ms. Josie Regan. Uh, Sound Transit's a labor uh, chief, uh, uh, Leslie Jones, uh, John T. Robinson, who's over civil rights, equity, and inclusion for Sound Transit, and also the Sound Transit Board Chief that I talked to today, and that's uh, Councilman Kent Kill from University Place, who's also president of uh, the Washington Cities Association, the City of Seattle's Purchasing and Construction Services Office. Um, I also want to mention that, uh, on a sad note, I extend condolences to the Tate family, Willis Tate, and the passing of his uh, wife, uh, Margaret Tate, also to Reggie and Stan and Brett. Uh, uh, my heart goes out to you guys. I know what it's like. I also want to re remind you that uh, Saturday at 10 o'clock, uh, there will be a, a virtual town hall meeting with the Central District Community Preservation and Development Authority. Uh, you can go on their website and get that. It's going to be a live streaming. Uh, things are happening. Uh, also, be cognizant of the fact that led the legislature's in session. There are several bills and also other budget requests uh, for the McKinney Center, the MLK Gandhi Empowerment Initiative. We'll be needing your support. The MLK Gandhi Empowerment Initiative uh, intends on training a significant number of African Americans to be proficient in digital technology. So, Eddie Wright, talk to you again next week. Thank you.